Hey, welcome to the Boardbox Extras podcast. Today we have a special treat in honor of our featured game this month, Wildcard. We wanted to set up a replay of an interview between Board and Paul Bentner from back in April. Enjoy. All right. Hello, everybody. I enjoy recording conversations like this with awesome people. My name is Bored. Some people know me as Bored Elon Musk. Um, I will do a thorough intro, but first of all, Paul wanted to say welcome. I try to really uh, hit it on the nose with the music choices, and <laughs> that one was for you. Oh, thank, thank you. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me, man. I'm really looking forward to uh, just getting a chance to like chat. I mean, I know you and I have talked about lots of specific topics in the past and then uh, it's just i'm just really looking forward to having an open-ended conversation about the game industry and games yeah like to keep it casual but informative and um people have really enjoyed uh the podcast uh and thank you to everybody who is tuning in live or listening to this later but yeah why don't we why don't we start with uh who we two jokers are some people who are listening will know us some won't and i always try to introduce myself as if you've never known me and paul i would encourage you to do the same so uh right. yeah you, you first yeah uh 10 year old uh pseudonym not to say that i am 10 years old the human but the the identity of board is a 10 year old um in uh i've been pretty active here on twitter in the last few years i've really kind of shifted uh to reveal more of my my real world self and and that includes a person who's worked in the gaming industry for over 10 years um, had a, a chance to work for one of the largest and most beloved game publishers in the world, helping launch uh, lots of great software and hardware, um, and spent a lot of time talking to game developers and learning the process of what it takes to bring a game to life. And so I've really shifted a lot of my attention now towards uh, helping people do that in Web3 and otherwise as uh, an investor, an advisor, and as the co-founder of Boardbox. Um, and so really my goal and the company's goal is to help people discover awesome games and awesome game creators. And Paul is one of them and he has a wonderful history and he's also making history with a new title. So um, with that, I will transition it over to you, Paul. Thank you, my friend. I, um, <clears throat> I, I am not under a pseudonym. <laughs> I am fully doxxed. My name is Paul Bettner. I have been uh, making games since I was a child um, I think I probably wrote my first games on a Tandy TRS-80 or actually whatever was before that. But I had a TRS-80 at home, which was amazing. This is all, of course, pre-internet. So I taught myself uh, out of magazines and whatever books I could find um, and, and started to learn when I was, I guess that was 12 or 13 or something like that. Um, experienced my first video games at that point. Um, I, I am proud to say I played Pong as one of the earliest games I did. Um, and had an Atari and then a Nintendo and, of course, grew up with all those um, those amazing consoles. Uh, I started kind of working professionally in games, I guess, if you could say, when I was uh, 16 or 17. I started a business, um, which was a bulletin board system. So, again, I'm dating myself and maybe some of the folks on the call will, will remember this. This is pre-internet days when we all used to dial up uh, and dial into either like AOL or, in this case, um, I ran kind of like a, an open forum where people would call into a bunch of computers that I had and we'd all get together and hang out and play games. Um, and I ran that and it turned into one of South Florida's biggest BBSs. It was called the Playing Fields. 
um, and we would play games together. And I wrote a, a piece of software for that system that allowed us to all connect in and play some of our favorite games that weren't designed to be played over modems. They were made for like, um, you know, like hardwired internet connections. It was called IPX back in the day. <laughs> and and that let, let me and my friends play games of Warcraft and Command and & Conquer and Doom um, back before you could play any of those games using a modem. Um, that was a blast. That kind of got me a little bit of a little bit of awareness in the game industry. So fast forward a couple of years, and I'm a 19 year old applying to game studios ridiculously. Like I didn't know what I was thinking, but um, but this little studio out here in Dallas, Ensemble Studios, uh, had had a few people who had used the software I'd written to play online games, and somehow that was enough to catch their interest and consider bringing me on. They were a tiny team at the time. I joined. Uh, and right as we were finishing Age of Empires 1, shipped that game, um, worked on the Rise of Rome expansion pack, then worked on Age of Empires 2, then basically all of the Age of Empires games, because I, I kind of grew up at that studio. I was there for um, 12 years, I think, uh, and shipped several Age of Empires games, sold that company to Microsoft, worked on the Halo Wars franchise, um, a couple of other games, including an unannounced un and canceled but amazing Halo MMO that we were working on back then um, that was kind of a little bit like Destiny, actually. Um, and uh, then left that company after I'd been there for 12 years to start one of the first iPhone game studios before anyone thought that was a good idea. <laughs> so it seems obvious now, but I swear at the time, like most of my friends and fellow game developers were like, what are you doing? Why would you want to make phone games? Like, that's the worst idea. Um, but I just was really, really drawn to what I saw in, in the iPhone and its potential to reach a new type of gamer and reach a broader audience. Um, and so we left and we started a small company called New Toy. Uh, we worked on a couple games. The one that we're known for is Words with Friends, which was uh, a, a, just a runaway hit. I think we... <laughs> We uh, have have crossed over 500 million players in that game, which is just insane. I mean, the scale of that. Anyway, that was an amazing ride from from zero to selling the company two years later to Zynga, uh, and um, and then after that started this game studio that is owned by my wife and I, which is called Playful. We've worked on several games here. Um, I think probably best known for the Lucky's Tale series, which was a VR game with Oculus. It was one of the launch games. And then uh, was also, we shipped a version called New Super Lucky's Tale with Nintendo that's now on every platform. Um, that game has also been really popular. I think it has over 5 million players now, which for a VR game and, and a console game is pretty good. Uh, and then we started working on this little game that I'm working on now called Wildcard. And we started this five or six years ago. Um, as a game that was designed to be watched as much it was as it, as it is played, um, we were really I am really drawn to this amazing sort of phenomenon that's been happening in gaming where people are watching other people play games. <laughs> I remember this the, the kind of this article that came out in 2014 where it was a analysis of YouTube traffic and it and at the time over half of all YouTube video views were Minecraft only. <laughs> And I just thought that was the most incredible thing. And it's it's over a trillion views Holy now. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's insane. And and the funny thing is, uh, you know, so many video game companies go and shut down, you know, player videos and say you're you could send them DCMAs. And it's like you have this amazing advertising mechanism oh, working for you. 
I, I don't understand. I mean, I, I, that's a whole other topic we could talk about, especially like the remix culture that we now live in and some game studios and game publishers reluctance to embrace that and, and instead to try to like wall off their content and their IP from this from the amazing creators who want to embrace it and want to, you know, broadcast it to their fans. And uh, anyway, um, well, yeah. Uh, so. I, I love the, the thorough overview. You just prompted a few questions that I'd love to ask you as a follow-up. First of all, this is a less less important one, but with the Atari uh, 2600, did, did the joystick ever make your hand hurt when you played it too long? <laughs> that was the worst it's like controller. Really like, I, saw this, yeah. I saw this Twitter thread where it was like, what's your favorite controllers? And it had like nine different, including like the Xbox boss controller and whatever else. And the Atari one was on there, and I'm like, that controller was awful. Like, just terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like sitting in, like, a 1987 Civic uh, versus, like, uh, a Mercedes, like, luxury sedan now with, like, controller. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just got a bunch of fight sticks for me and my kids. Um, the first time that they've ever played a fighting game properly. And we were playing the heck out of Street Fighter. We love it so much. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, next follow-up question. Did you ever you, – you started designing – uh, video games really early, which is amazing. Did you ever uh, attempt to design a non-video game, like a tabletop or a board game? Do you care about uh, that? At yeah, all? I mean, I have my really the closest I got was just designing like um, campaigns for role-playing games, like Dungeons and Dragons or uh, Shadowrun. I actually designed like a, a full-on tabletop game or a new card game, and and of course now that I've worked with and known people that are really really good at that. It's insanely difficult, like in some ways more difficult yeah. than designing a video game. <laughs> it, yes, it is. Uh, I, I've uh, I've done two via Kickstarter, moderate successes, but um, you can't patch uh, <laughs> no, you a can't. tabletop game. <laughs> no, you, you know, you ship it and you're like, oh, man. And then the first time somebody reaches out to you and says, hey, I found a typo. It's just uh, it hurts your, your soul. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, OK, uh, next follow up question. So it was funny you said what you did about mobile games, how like people were not quite sure how, you know, how that would take off. Obviously, we know mobile games are huge now, but I, I recently watched the new movie about uh, Tetris. Oh, I can't wait to watch that. It. Oh, it's so good. And, you know, no, no spoilers, but like basically everybody who looked at the Game Boy and Tetris immediately fell in love and saw why it was going to be a massive success. And I want, like, why do you think that people didn't make that same connection or analogy with phones? Like, it's such an obvious, you know, next level of like, oh, it's really fun games that are portable. Like, this makes a ton of sense. And yet, you know, a lot of studios were kind of skeptical of it. I mean, I'm curious what how you felt about it when you took that risk. So I've run into this in a pretty significant way twice now in my career. In both cases, um, I, it, I think it might have been the same idea. So... Obviously, we went through this with, with the iPhone, and there was a ton of skepticism amongst game developers and game publishers, especially here in the West. Like, the East didn't have this problem. The, the East and Asian companies and Asian developers, you know, they jumped right on it. They embraced it. The same thing is happening in Web3 right now, too. Like, the yeah, Eastern yeah. companies are not afraid to embrace that, that, that kind of new technology. But anyway, um, you know, the, the thing that that then later happened that reminded me of it is when the Nintendo Wii came out. Um, and, and it was the same experience. So I was like running around inside of Ensemble Studios, like just going into everybody's office, like, have you seen this? Look at what Nintendo just announced this thing. Look at the controller. It's so amazing. It's motion controls. And it's like designed for like grandma to use and like, you know, whatever. And 
I was so excited about the fact that this device wasn't aimed at traditional gamers. And, and it was the same thing with the iPhone. Like I, I felt like, you know, you were talking about the Game Boy and my wife is not a huge gamer, did not grow up as a huge gamer. And I remember when I first saw the iPhone feeling like this is going to be basically like she's going to buy a Game Boy. She's not going to know it. She's going to buy it as her phone. But it will be basically a Game Boy in, in her in her purse that I can like make games for. And I and the thing that was the sort of in common between both those and, and Nintendo does this all the time is they were they were not aimed for the traditional core gamer demographic. They were, you know, disruptive devices and platforms that were uh, that were potentially trying to reach much larger, much more casual audiences. And I think as an industry, and I don't think this is unique to the game industry, but certainly for the game industry, we tend to get very focused on the, the audience that we have, the players that we have, um, and, and you know, can be a little skeptical about, like, the people who aren't playing games, who don't call themselves, quote-unquote, gamers, and, and attempts to reach those audiences not necessarily embraced by the game industry. But for whatever reason, for me, that's always been the most fascinating opportunity. I... I remember this talk that I went to at a game developers conference from Nintendo and they kind of said the same thing. They were like, we love our current audience, our, our current customers always, but what, who we love even more are the people who aren't playing our games yet. The people who don't know Nintendo or don't buy Nintendo. We love to think about why, what, what is that? What is the reason what's holding them back and how can we reach that audience? And I just love that philosophy. And I think that's what's in common between those, those two things at least. No, it, it makes sense. Um, I got to sit in a bunch of uh, focus groups and, and research studies around gaming uh, during my time in the industry. And one of the interesting things that we found was that a lot of those people you describe who don't kind of classify themselves as, as gamers sort of feel uh, ashamed of like playing games and letting other people see it. So whether it's a Game Boy or a Game Boy Advance or a PSP or even a console, they're like, uh, I look like I should be doing something else right now to other people. Whereas on the phone, Nobody knows, right? You're on the bus and you could be uh, checking email or you could be playing Candy Crush and no one's like judging you in your mind. And that for a lot of people, it was an unlock to feeling comfortable with gaming and sort of, you know, entering that world. And that, that literally brought in like hundreds of millions of people, I think. This is so true. Like my mom, um, who plays the heck out of Words of Friends, there was this time uh, when I was working on the servers and I looked up her account. And she was playing like 3.8 hours a day or something like that. And I called her up and I was like, mom, you're more of a gamer than me. Like, I don't play 3.8 hours of games every day. I don't have time for that. And she's like, what did you call me? I'm like, you're a gamer. <laughs> it was like a four letter word. Like, I, you know, I, I don't, I, I think that's possibly like, like you were saying earlier, like just a, a unique thing about the West. Like we kind of have that issue. We don't, we, we like to appear productive and not like we're goofing off or having a good time. I, like I said, when I go over to Asian countries, I don't notice that like people are just happily playing their switch on the subway and whatever else adults, you know, but well, my, yeah. my personal mission is to get people as comfortable playing games as they are using social media and both you could argue both are, are neither neither it's is as productive or as, as any of the others. So it's gotta be coming. Like I, there's just no way like, like, so if you wouldn't ask this generation of young people whether they're gamers or not, like, of course they are. Everybody's a gamer now of a certain age. And I just think that there's, that, that, like, when we, again, when we talk about the opportunity of video games, like, that's, from my perspective, we are still just now beginning to enter that golden age where, where basically everyone in our target demographic is a gamer. We don't have to ask that question. And that's never been true before. Uh, so 
it's amazing. Like I, I think that some of that stigma is going to go away. I hope anyway. Uh, and I can't wait. Yeah, no, that's great. And, um, you know, th this was me trying to keep us slightly uh, or somewhat on topic of the business of video games. So I appreciate you uh, humoring <laughs> me with all the follow ups. But, you know, I like to share nuggets from the from what, what I've learned over time. And I, and I know you will as well. So, you know, one of the questions I had for you, since you've, you've been in this space for a while, you've gone from sort of, you know, zero to 60 when it when it comes to uh, putting a game out. Between, you know, essentially having a game concept um, ready to go all the way through releasing it to the general public, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of steps. Um, what is your favorite and least favorite part of the development process or has been? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so <clears throat> my favorite part of it uh, is when we have finally gotten to the point where the game is irresistibly fun, irresistibly good, joyful, um, makes people happy. And then I get to just watch that experience. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Florida uh, near Disney World um, in Miami. And so I had the, the amazing opportunity to go to Disney World more often as a kid because it was just a drive away and we had season passes and such. And something in me like just absolutely fell in love with that experience of like the happiness that that just literally walking through those front gates would cause for almost universally everyone. And and it was just this amazing thing that, that I, I kind of just, uh, you know, I, I guess it just had a big impact on me and and realized that that's what I wanted to be a part of uh, when I was growing up is. Um, and, you know, we were referencing Nintendo earlier. I've, I love how they describe this, too, especially Miyamoto-san will talk about how. Um, how he, he knows his job is done when he puts one of his games in front of people and he's just seeing smiles and people are just enjoying it. Um, and so my favorite part is when we get to that point of a product where, um, where it is just creating joy for people. And then I can sort of observe that without, without like uh, <laughs> revealing myself. So when we were working on words with friends, one of my favorite things to do, and I would never do this cause I love, so when I'm watching a movie, I like to sit like right in the middle and like the perfect seat or whatever. But during that time, I would actually get tickets in the back um, because I liked to just look down over the over the arena, over the, the people that were sitting. And I could count several people playing Words with Friends on their phone and just and just watch it. And it was just this amazing, joyful experience. Um, what's funny is that my least favorite part of game development is the other side of that. So, the you know, the process of finding a fun in developing a game uh, is very difficult and can be brutal, especially when we're not like just kind of copying an existing game design or, or you know, um, cloning a, another popular game or whatever, which happens a lot in our industry, obviously. We're what? Highly, highly inspired by Scrabble. <laughs> I believe the first to say it, it's fine. Um, but, you know, I've, I've, also, I've also worked on games that were, that were completely new, like the one we're working on now, Wildcard. It's, it's kind of a, a brand new genre of like summon MOBA is what somebody called it the other day, which I love. And that process is, can be very painful when, when we're what I call wandering in the woods, like trying to find the fun of that game and the joy of that game. And then we have these experiences where we also need to put the game in front of people and see what they're responding positively to or negatively to. We call those play tests. Uh, <clears throat> and I have to force myself. It, it's the most valuable part of like what we do because watching where people are getting frustrated or lost or having a bad time and not fun um, that's the most informative part of the development process. 
but it's so painful for me. <laughs> like I have to literally force myself to watch those videos or sit behind that one-way mirror or whatever and watch those play testers like fumble and have, have trouble and be frustrated and confused. Like, Oh, it's so, it's so hard for me. It's pretty brutal. Yeah. I, I have found that process to be similar to what I experienced when I dabbled in um, comedy writing and and improv comedy, which is you write like a sketch or a a skit and in your head, there are certain parts that are really funny. And then you go and have people read it and they're laughing at all the stuff that you didn't think was funny and not at all at the things you thought were funny. And then you have to rewrite it again and again and again. And in, in game design, absolutely. Like in your mind, you fill in all the, the gaps, you solve all the problems. And, you know, like the best advice I ever got was it's not, it's not done until you have, you know, a thousand people play it and give you feedback. But it is brutal. It's like your child being criticized, basically, and you have to sort of just sit there and smile and accept that's it. That's right. That's exactly. That's a perfect analogy. And it's like, <laughs> and you can't, you can't step in because that like pollutes that play test process. So you just have to watch them fumble. Like, like there'll be there'll be these times where I was just I had to like bite my hands because you'd you'd have a user that's trying to do something, like trying to find something in your game or activate some feature or whatever, and the button is like right there right there and they're not seeing it they're not they don't understand that that's even an option and you're just like oh i can't (laughs) we can't say anything we just have to record this feedback and you know but it's like we were saying earlier it's the most powerful part of game development i think i think the games that we love the most like and again i'll point to nintendo and uh games that we've all played like mario and zelda um nintendo has this amazing quality of their game which is that when you watch their players or you watch or we ourselves experience playing in a a nintendo game especially one of their tentpole franchises like that there's very few experiences where you would try to do something and it wouldn't go the way you were hoping or expecting and like so breath of the wild which is of course the you know the signature game that um that we the whole game industry has been copying since it came out basically it has that that to the to the most extent that any Nintendo game has ever had, where they actually turn that into a game mechanic, where you'll be wandering around the world, you'll be like, you know, that rock looks out of place. Like, that's weird. I wonder if, and you'll like pick up the rock and put it where you think it should go, and suddenly like a, the game will reward you, recognize that that happened, and be like, yeah, ha here's a reward for you. And that that feeling is one of the best feelings in games, but the only way that that gets developed in my experience is you have to watch people, you have to watch them play test, you have to watch all the things they're trying to do, and every time they get lost or frustrated or confused, that's an opportunity to make the game better and to, and to actually delight them instead. And that process just takes a lot of time, that's the other part of it, is like, you can't accelerate it with money, it's just literally play test and relentless iteration. The other part of it, too, I would say, you know, in terms of the business of video games is you might have a really novel concept and idea, um, but risk is scary to a game publisher or, you know, if you're in the movie business, coming up with a totally novel type of uh, storyline is scary because who knows if, if people will like it. So the, the playtesting in games is sort of the data you need to be able to go to your publisher and say, hey, this crazy mechanic that no one's ever seen is actually going to work really well. Uh, and you should give me money to make this game <laughs> or, 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 to, or to move forward with it. <laughs> that is, I mean, so when I, when I look back on the Age of Empires games that we worked on, every one of them went through the same process. You'd think that by the time we got to like, you know, age three, which would ship like several expansion packs and of course age one and age two, that we would have, and Age of Mythology, that we would have like had that formula figured out or whatever. But every single one of those games, we had to go through that same process. We We were unsatisfied with, 
just kind of doing the same thing we had done before. So we were try we would always with our games try to to find some new signature features or or uh, aspects of the game that were going to be fun for players. And every time it would like set us back into that process of like wandering in the woods. And we, and there, I mean, I, I, it's just crazy. Every one of the Age of Empires games had a crisis moment where we were like, do we even know how to make RTS games? I don't know. <laughs> like maybe we forgot, maybe we've lost the, what it takes to it. And like, and we would just push through that and push through that process of being like, well, this is just not fun yet, but let's, let's find those places where players are having fun, where that spark is happening and let's focus on those things. Let's try to fix the frustrations, the confusion, and let's keep going. And, and that, you know, that pursuit can had in the case of age of empires led to, to these games that were impossible to put down, but usually by busting schedules and budgets and things to get there, which, you know, is challenging, like you said, for the publishers, especially. I have a difficult question for you um, that you might've been asked before. Why do you think Age of Empires 2 continues to be the most popular one? At least that's my opinion and my perception of it. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It definitely is. Um, I, I would say that that one gets cited the most often um, when we ask, like, what is your favorite Age of Empires game? And the other one that we hear a lot is Age of Mythology, which is I love really it. I love that one. Yeah, I yeah. Love that. that was the one where we like we intentionally named it Age of Mythology instead of Age of Empires, which is a huge debate in the studio because we were like, look, we're going to try something different here that is probably going to piss off mainline Age of Empires players, especially coming off Age 2. So let's call it this other thing so that we don't have to be beholden so much to that to that weight. But anyway, um, I think the reason... So for me, uh, Age of Empires 2, I think, nailed the, the formula of, of just the right sense of progression through the ages and over the course of the game the right uh, balance of units and civilizations and resources and map. And, you know, the art was really the pinnacle of that 2D work that we had been doing and the engine development that we had been working on to get it to that point. And, you know, there's this, this thing that can happen. Um, I've worked on now a couple different sequels like this, where the team, having come off the first Age of Empires game, was just so full of like everything we wish we had done, but didn't get a chance to do because we had to ship it. We ran out of time. You know, there was all these features and concepts and things that had got left on the cutting room floor. And when we had that opportunity and Microsoft signed that sequel game with us to work on age two, we got to basically take the game we already had and truly finish it, like truly take it all the way that we, that we had envisioned originally um, and age age two for us was like that that pinnacle moment. It's like this is everything we had hoped that our, the age games and the age franchise could be, um, and and I think that's why it ended up being being the most beloved of the franchise. No, it it, it makes sense. Uh, sequels are not always good, but I think in movies, but with, with games, it is very much a here's all the stuff that we didn't get to do, um, and you can bring that into into the next one. So I, I love that. So you know, relevant to that to that point. Um, the idea of sequels and games is kind of dying to some degree. Like if you have one player narrative games, obviously there's, there's, there's sequels and follow-ups to it. But when it comes to online games, you have now like kind of a live services model where you just have a game and it keeps getting updated. 
uh, Grand Theft Auto, you know, five has been around <laughs> and active for for over a decade yeah, for this no, reason. People are going to be pissed when it, when six comes out and they try to transition to that because there's so much love for that franchise now. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, Fortnite is an example where like the game essentially just changes every quarter, every six months. So that that model sort of is eliminating the idea for for sequels. But does that as a game designer kind of scare you where you have basically these games that are playable forever the game itself changes. And, and I think more scary, at least from my perspective, is you know there's a finite amount of attention for games every day for how much you can play. And games aren't you know being played and then being put on the shelf. They, they survive for decades. And how do you grapple with that? Like as a game dev, fighting that, that, that lack of attention um, and sort of these multi-decade you know, franchises that, that now exist uh, when you're trying to create a new IP with something like Wildcard. Man, that's a fascinating question. I, I want to go on record for, on this point as when we sold Words with Friends to Zynga, I was desperately trying to get them to not create Words with Friends 2. <laughs> <laughs> that seems wild, very unnecessary. <laughs> With, yeah, I was like, this one has guns. I was like, listen, listen, you, you spent a lot of money to acquire this brand and this thing. And you're now talking about basically creating like Coke too. Like, why would you do that? In fact, you can look at what Coke did and they tried, like they had to back out of that decision because that wasn't a good idea. Please don't do this. And, you know, I think some of that thinking that, that has kind of been a part of why make a sequel uh, was still working its way into that, into that particular process. It's like, well, a sequel is an opportunity to reactivate players and like get people excited about some new version of this. But to your point, I think that video games are starting to settle into these um, these more like forever franchises and evergreen uh, experiences um, where, where the, the fact that the game, like you're saying, can be updated and played online and live, which was different than when we had to put a game in a box on the CD, uh, has enabled that sort of, you know, forever uh, franchise model. And I from so so the second part of your question, I, I don't imagine that any every game developer would say this, but for me, I love that the most, actually. Like, I love the idea of being able to create these evergreen franchises that become a part of our life and that become these places where we hang out. Not just not just an experience that we had once and we put away, but, you know, like, I, I think, like, a good analogy is the board game market. We were talking about board games earlier. These There are these forever beloved board games that exist that will never go away, that are always on the shelf in stores, um, but I think that the way that that market has kind of evolved over time is those games and those franchises become the entry point for people. And then once they get into that particular type of entertainment, then like the other half of the shelf in the store is generally taken up by brand new games and cool new concepts that are being invented still in board games and card games. Uh, and and it's sort of this like, I mean, it's not, I mean, I, I, I don't know the statistic, but it seems like it's kind of half and half. Um, and and those those forever franchises become the gateway to to then the new experiences and the indies and the other types of you know entertainment that's being created. The same thing seems to exist in games. Like when I look at the Steam charts, it sort of feels like that same breakdown. Like, of course, the top charts are dominated by those forever franchises like Grand Theft Auto, like you were mentioning, but when a new idea and a new concept comes out and catches fire, then that those games will share that, that top 10 spot on, on steam in, in those cases. And so for me, I, I, I love it. I think it's great. I, I, my 
the thing I've always ever wanted in my career was to be able to work on and create those forever franchises because maybe it's the hardest thing in games to do. You know, um, there, there's so many games that are like one hit games, right. That are like, they, they were the right thing, the right time and they caught on and they, and they grew. And then there's a, just a small handful of game development publishers and developers and studios in the world who can consistently crank out great stuff uh, over the years. And to me, I think that's the hardest thing. And it's what I've been striving to do in, in my career. Well, and I'd like to think that you're now in a position where you can take those risks and create something new. It seems like everybody who goes through the game industry early on will start, you know, building things that other people have come up with, and they're sort of tried and true models. Um, and then as you have a bit of a comfort and respect and money, uh, you can try some some crazy stuff. Uh, it's why somebody like a Hideo Kojima can make Death Stranding and you know, not everybody loves it, but he's earned the right to do it. So yes, that, that's indeed. the goal. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, you know, it's it's a little bit of a blessing and a curse. Like I, I sometimes am jealous of uh, of the smaller and and especially the indie games that are that that continuously push the boundaries of what video games can be. Um, I love those efforts, and and so it, it can be a little bit of a like some 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 days I wish that 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 those things weren't the case, um, but. But it's it's amazing to have those uh, those opportunities and that privilege to, um, you know, to to be able to work on the bigger games and to be able to have the bigger budgets like what we're doing with Wildcard right now. Uh, I I just yeah I'm very grateful for it. So I want to get to to Wildcard uh, as well and and leave time to talk about that before the the top of the hour. Um, so I kind of want to skip ahead to esports. I think you know you you mentioned um, earlier on that. Uh, the the you know the, this act of like watching other people play games has grown tremendously. Um, people viewing games is just as big as people who are playing games. Not necessarily economically speaking, like the the esports industry hasn't necessarily flourished, but the behavior uh, of people competing online and sharing what they're doing has has certainly grown. Um, Wildcard definitely feels like a game to me, at least that has a lot of potential. Um, to be enjoyed by by viewers in addition to players, but looking at sort of the last ten years of of esports as an industry, um, you've had big prize pools, you've filled up giant stadiums, you know, with with co competitors. But yet, I would I would think, and you, I would think that you would agree that most people in this business still think esports has not succeeded, it has not broken yeah. through to oh, the I level totally of agree. sports. <clears throat> I mean, the 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 talent and the esports players and and the team managers, the folks that we connect with. Uh, they're 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 not having the best time. There's 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 pain a lot of pain points there. Yeah, and and so I'm curious to get your take on why that is. My my personal position is that um, compared to say sports, um, people didn't grow up, grow up with like generations of their family rooting for teams, and so there's a little bit of like that missing. The other piece of it is um, I feel like when you view traditional sports, physical sports there's more storytelling and there's a bit more just like skin in the game because you personally feel emotionally attached to whether your team loses or wins. And I, I felt disconnected from that feeling in esports. And I don't know if that's kind of the key to what's missing or why the, why the money isn't there, but yeah. I mean, what, what have you observed about sort of the, the pain points or what have you heard from people in esports about what's not working? And, and I'm curious, you know, just thinking about wildcard before we jump into the game, um, but at, at a broad level, like, what are you trying to avoid 
um, so that that doesn't sort of get repeated with the game you're building from an esports perspective? That's a great question. I um, <clears throat> so I, I feel like there's two answers to this. Um, what I experienced over the last personally, I, I'm not an esports professional myself. I'm not an esports team owner. Uh, so, so a lot of, of my understanding of this comes from working with those folks and hearing their stories and their experiences in the games that we've worked on. Um, what I saw, what I've seen happen over the last decade or 15 years or something, um, was like really an overinflation and of expectations for what streaming and what esports could be at the time. Um, and what that did is it drove a lot of money, like too much, honestly, too much money, too much interest, too much capitalism into into video games uh, and specifically competitive streamed video games. Um, and so those those companies raised a bunch of money. There was a ton of investment, hugely inflated, um, you know, market caps and uh, and valuations um, and. And when that happens, those people who put in all that money are expecting a return. And, and so they, they start to, to be the drivers rather than the, the, the ones that are kind of just supporting and uh, that business. Um, and, and, that, and that has really been in the driver's seat for the last, uh, you know, I don't know, decade even. Um, and that, that has led to an inorganic uh, growth of that industry that I think has really hurt it. And um, and the, the the result of that is that the east the current esports businesses and and really the economics of streaming are very extractive. There, um, there's a lot of of different parties that aren't necessarily the talent, aren't necessarily just the amazing competitors or the teams who are who have a lot of invested interest in the success of that industry or did. Like a lot of them are leaving now because the esports bubble quote unquote popped, and so they've moved on to other things and. The, the end result of that, which I love to see, I was looking at this this growth uh, chart of Twitch the other day, and it was showing that there is a consistent growth in Twitch users every year. It hasn't slowed down. It's just continued to grow. Um, but one of the things that was that was kind of negative on that graph was the number of individual creators and interesting streams was going down. And so what you were getting is more and more concentration into the top you know, 1% of that particular audience. But that reversed a couple of years ago. And now the number of unique creators is, has started to grow again. I think that's possibly because of that burst. Like what, once you get, you know, when that was happening, you were getting so much investment being poured into that industry. Um, you know, it, it creates this logarithmic curve that, that, that tends to focus entirely on just the few creators that can demand all the attention and all the money goes to that. And it prices out and pushes out uh, the more organic opportunities that exist there which is always what i've been most excited about like i i i love the the high end of esports but what i love even more is the fact that like anybody in their bedroom with a computer can can find their audience can find their fans can start to stream their experience and then as a as a fan you can find those unique people that are that are your people that are like you know oh that guy's just like me and he plays this game that i love and you know uh, that that's what i'm more drawn to in this um so so yeah. I, I love that that started to turn around. Um, and, and in the case of Wildcard specifically, um, what we're trying to do is work on the other end of that spectrum. We're trying to create a platform and specifically use, using the Web3 technologies that we've kind of fallen in love with over the last couple of years to, to kind of work around those extractive business models that, that have grown up around that industry. Um, because when you, when you talk to those content creators, 
their sources of revenue and their sources of like monetizing their audience are very limited and very controlled by these web two platforms. Um, whereas like for us as a developer of these games, like we, we have consistently hugely benefited from this, from the streamers, from the people who are coming in to, to play our game and, and, you know, bring in thousands of people to watch them play it. Typically as game developers, we've looked at that and said, cool, that's great. Um, what, why that's valuable to us is because some portion of that audience will eventually convert into players and they'll install our game and, and then we'll make money that way. And with Wildcard, we sort of set out with a different mission. We were, say, what we, were, we were looking at that opportunity and saying, you know, the people who are tuning in to watch, who a lot of them are just like running the game or, or the view of the game in a little window while they do something else, their homework or their, or their work or whatever, those people are also customers of this game and IP, even if they never actually install the game. And so what does it mean to build a game that recognizes that that opportunity is happening? You know, the, the games that are popular on streaming and in esports, there's still the, the, the fact that thousands of people will be tuning in to watch a particular competitor, a particular streamer, it's still invisible to the game. Like, if you're watching somebody play Fortnite and that person has no viewers versus you're watching somebody who has a thousand viewers or 10,000 viewers, it doesn't change the experience at all. You don't even get a sense that you are there together with that many people who are sharing that opportunity. And so like the second part of your question, which is, well, what's held it back? I think my thesis and certainly the hypothesis that we're operating with with Wildcard is those games haven't gotten... As, as great as they are, as great as it is to watch Fortnite on Twitch or League of Legends or whatever your favorite game is, they still don't replicate the experience of sharing in our favorite sporting events um, and being a part of a community of fans yes. and, and having that sense of connection that you get uh, when you watch those events. And it's not just because the games themselves aren't necessarily built to be watched. It's also because this other thing I'm mentioning, which is that the fans and the spectators have no embodiment in those experiences. And so as a game developer, to me, that's an, that's an opportunity. We, we're creating the environment where that stuff is happening, and we can create environments that feel more like coming together as a community to celebrate in that thing that's happening rather than just this invisible mass of ghosts that are floating above somebody's head in Fortnite that you never see. That's right. Yeah, we, we need to basically recreate that feeling of being in a stadium with 100,000 people or the feeling of I'm at home but I know uh, that there's, you know, a million people watching this on TV and I'm texting my, my friends about what's happening and trash talking that hasn't quite translated over. And I do think that there's a fundamental difference between sort of the typical esports player who is this, you know, this this person with headphones on huddled over a computer, not talking versus the streamer who is shoutcasting and, and screaming and like playing live like one is a performer and one is an athlete very rarely sometimes you get somebody who's really really good at a game and can basically do the performance at the same time and that's where you get like those elite top five you know twitch streamers or, or youtubers but that's rare and, and i think that the way you're setting up wildcard is really you know allowing for <laughs> that hunched over person in headphones to be the awesome competitor that they are and not necessarily provide the entertainment but because the audience feels other audience members and feels like they have more skin in the game because they might win prizes or other stuff or, or you know, when, when, when their player is winning, it just changes the dynamic. And I, and I think like the, the fundamental observation I'm taking from you is that 
Um, the past with the, the past model for esports was, um, you know, we're the game publisher, we own this game, and the esports competitions have to pay us for the privilege of being able to play it, and the the players and the competitions then have to extract money from the audience. Whereas in this model, you, the game you know creator, are saying, no, 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 esports people, go do what you're going to do. We're not going to charge you all this money to basically promote our game for free. And then you can treat your audience however you want. You can make money off of them or you can reward them or do whatever you want. But we're not going to make you pay uh, you know, a tax, essentially, to use our product because we, we respect you more than maybe the traditional model has. So we've, we've talked, that's exactly right. We've talked about, you know, this evolution that video games over the course of your and I's career, where so much has changed, not just about how a game is distributed and published and gets in the hands of players, but also how games are monetized. And I, as you know, setting out with Wildcard, what we knew initially was we want to make a game that's as fun to watch as it is to play. We want to try to elevate video games to that experience of, uh, of a spectator sport, of our favorite spectator sports. And, you know, to like what we were saying earlier, when, when I was talking to my wife, who's our co-CEO and co-founder of this company, and we were talking about this opportunity, she was like, well, I don't know if I'm super excited about that, but you know what? If you could make it as fun, as exciting as, as it is for her to watch like the Super Bowl, then she's all in on this opportunity. And, and, and I think that's, that is really what inspired us to recognize that that was possible that that video games hadn't yet gotten to that level to your point and that they could there was not there's no reason why they shouldn't why why it wasn't possible to to elevate a video game there and then this other question comes up which is what you're just talking about which is like okay but what is the unique business opportunity here um and and how can we use this vision to to reinvent all the aspects of what we're doing and what we noticed as we've been working on this game and connecting with the audience of people that we hope to be playing it that are that are that are those esports athletes and those streamers and asking them about how how, do, how does your business work like what is it like being one of these people who's trying to make a living out of playing video games professionally and what we heard time and time again was like that they were on the uh, uh, like they were basically getting the table scraps of these giant publishers and platforms who were monetizing the heck out of the value that they were creating and they were getting only a little bit of that and I, what, I, what I realized there is in a traditional video game, competitive video game business, the publisher owns both parts of that, like, like you were just talking about. They, that We would normally own the game and the IP itself, and we would monetize that with people who are installing the game and buying content in the game, etc. And then if the game is embraced as an esport by the community, we would also end up owning the competitive ecosystem and economy that exists for that game, which is also very lucrative for the publishers and the developers, typically. Um, I remember, you know, at the height of the esports phenomenon, uh, league rights for games like Overwatch were typically going for 20 to 30 million. Uh, it is crazy, right? So what we thought about there and realized there is those two things are connected. Like the, the fact that these creators and, and these people who are creating this amazing value are suffering and this part of the business is typically kind of just like icing on the cake. Like we're already making money with the game. And then we also get to make all this additional money with the esports aspects of the game. That that was an opportunity to say, what if we didn't own that second part of the business? Like what if we let our community own that part? And, and we figured out how to build a platform that could be owned by those content creators where we could bring them directly into that value creation that they're participating in and let them get way more of that if we were willing to step back and not try to monetize that part of the business ourselves. 
Web3 has been the answer to that particular, like, th that's the thing. Like, I, I'm not, I don't, I, I love new technologies and, and I've always tried to. Pa Paul, we've gone 50 minutes here. and we have not said the word Web3 yet until, yes, until exactly. that moment. Congrats. <laughs> go on, go on. Uh, and, and. And I think that's that's intentional. I, I I don't I don't love technology just for technology's sake. That's that's what I was getting at. Like I I love technology if it can solve interesting problems and can and can help us make better games. And in this case, what w w the reason the thing that ultimately I think convinced me and us that this was the technology that we were looking for is that that's the experience we were trying to build already. We were trying to bring together competitors shoutcasters, coaches, team owners, fans, collectors, spect spectators, like all these different groups. And we were trying to let them be a part of that value that they're creating, be a part of that ecosystem. And we, we were like <laughs> running into these problems when we were talking to these traditional platforms like Twitch and YouTube of like, hey, you guys currently sit in between us and our customers. And we really would like for you to give us these features so that we can like have more direct value going back and forth between the people who are tuning in to watch the game, the people who are creating that content. Uh, and there wasn't a lot of the, we didn't, we didn't make a lot of progress in those conversations because those businesses are already up and running. They're already hugely profitable or, or maybe, I don't know, I assume uh, for the companies who are running these platforms like YouTube and Twitch. Um, and so there's not a lot of incentive to invent what could be better or what could come next. Um, but like I said, we realized this power that we had as the game developer, we are providing that environment where that activity is taking place. And when Web3, when, when I, for me, when I fully understood what Web3 is, which is not about tokens or financialization or any of that stuff, it's really about creating a protocol that can, that can connect people in new ways using a blockchain uh, as, an, as an open distributed way to, to like have transactions happen. That's what unlocked, like for me, I was like, that's the technology we need. If we want to build this new platform, this new ecosystem, and we want to give that to the content creators instead of own it ourselves, this is the tech that can let us do that. Well, and the, the crazy thing uh, that I've, I've sort of thought, thought about is that all these game companies that require the esports leagues and players to pay them, they then take that money and then they use it and they spend it on advertising and user acquisition. And at the same time, they're constraining how many people actually want to be free advocates for their game because they're charging yes. them so much money. So yes. it's like, why don't you just not waste money on Facebook ads and TV ads and instead just use that cost or opportunity cost of that money and just give it back to the people who want to play your game and shout from the mountains about how awesome it is. This seems so obvious to me. And Yeah, um, I, think, I think it's, I mean, again, I've, I've gone through this now a couple times in my career where the biggest companies have trouble pivoting to the disruptive ideas. I mean, this is a, this is a story as old as time when it comes to business. Um, and one of the things that I respect a lot about Apple, for instance, certainly under Steve Jobs' uh, direction, was that they were not afraid to like put themselves out of business, basically. Like they would have some very profitable part of their, of their company or their business, and they would be like, well, we've invented this new product that's basically gonna destroy this other revenue source and this other product line. But if we don't do it, someone else will. So let's not be afraid to, to take our company in this, in this bold new direction, because if we don't, some startup will just come along and do it. But most companies aren't willing to do that. And certainly, like I, I'd say in, in video games, like the, the giant publishers who are at this point enormous, they've all, they've all aggregated and acquired their way to being these huge companies. It's not typical in large companies like that to, to find that they have the ability to pivot to disruptive new ideas. 
And and I think that's like a double-edged sword. Like on on the one hand, you know, it'd be great if they did. On the other hand, I think they know they they kind of don't have to because when those disruptive ideas show up, they typically just buy them anyway. Um, so I understand where that comes from. But from my perspective as an independent developer, it just creates opportunity because I think, like you're saying, it's what the players want. It's what would naturally happen. And and as a game developer, as I was mentioning, we have the power to make that possible because. You know, as as great as Twitch or YouTube are, they're just streaming the content from our game, which isn't like some amazing innovative thing. At this point, I can just go start up an Amazon server that does the same thing. It's not that big of a deal. But the video game environment is where that innovation can happen. Uh, and I, I hope it's not just us. Like, I'm really looking forward to seeing other developers and other games push this boundary forward as well. No, 100%. And, and I think you guys are, uh, you know, one of the leads in that space. And, uh, and there are many others that are, you know, at your level or of the same quality that I'm excited to see succeed. Um, so we we burned a lot of time talking about the nerdy business of, of video games. I want to make sure there's at least a little bit of time for you to talk about Wildcard. Um, for anyone who, you know, listens to this uh, later uh, in terms of the recording, can you do a like a, a two-minute elevator pitch of the actual game and, and talk a little bit about the Wild Pass um, uh, mint that is coming up? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, Wildcard is, as I mentioned, is kind of like uh, a little bit of a new genre that um, that has now been coined a summon MOBA. Um, back to the beginning of when we worked on this game, we were frustrated that 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 a game like this didn't exist, and I still don't understand why that that this experience doesn't exist. So we all, you know, and probably a lot of your listeners, but certainly us, we love these these collectible summonable games like. Um, uh, like Pokemon, obviously, is the is the root of this, um, and but also collectible card games like Magic and and um, and Hearthstone, and those games are kind of abstract. They don't they they represent something, which is I'm a I'm a creature collector, I'm a creature summoner, and I'm gonna and I own these creatures. I'm gonna bring them to life, and they're gonna do battle for me. But they don't really bring that experience to life in a way that feels like what the fiction portrays it as. You know, when you actually play a game of Pokemon or, or, or uh, you know, any of these other collectible card games, it's more abstract. It's turn-based. It's not, it's not this kind of visceral experience. You, you see the card move and hit the other card. Yeah, exa <laughs> That's the exactly. And, uh, and then we go and, like, watch Pokemon the movie, and it's, like, this amazing experience where it's, like, ah, you know, summoning creatures, and they're doing these epic battles. And we're, like, felt like there was an opportunity to bring that experience to life in a video game. And so we started off with that. And that's what Wildcard is now. It's, it's in our mind, it's, it's kind of the ultimate creature summoning battle game where you get to live the fantasy of being a champion who has this amazing roster of creatures and you're summoning the battle and you're, you're fighting alongside them with all of the, you know, the, the excitement and thrill and real time aspects that you would expect. And so that was the vision was to bring that to life um, the result has been fascinating because what is typically found in these games and these genres is more of a methodical uh, kind of gameplay. Um, and so you look at the card game like like Pokemon or Hearthstone or Magic the Gathering, it's turn-based, it's kind of rigid. Um, there's obviously an element of randomness in, in the cards that you draw, but it's a more thoughtful, more, more paced experience, um, which makes it a little less casual, a little less approachable, a little less accessible. Um, and it turns out that because of our desire to create more of a real time, visceral, you know, Im immersive experience, we've ended up making something that has this, the, the same joy 
of like, I'm going to perfect my deck. Like I'm going to build, I'm going to select the perfect creatures and I'm going to bring them into this game and we're going to see how they perform. But then once you're in the middle of doing that, it's a lot more flexible, a lot more fluid. It's real time. So you're obviously summoning creatures, not on turns. You're doing them whenever you can. Uh, more, more like a game like Clash Royale, if you guys have played that. It's a very popular mobile game that has a lot in common with Wildcard. Um, and that makes that strategy, I, I think, a little more, like I said, approachable and enjoyable. I, I've seen this, this progression of, of real-time strategy games uh, over over my career, from from where we started with Age Vampires through like MOBAs and Auto Battlers, and I feel like what we've ended up now with with Wildcard is is possibly a next evolution of that, where it still has those elements of collectability and strategic thought, but but it it makes that experience even more enjoyable. Like we we we've had this mantra as game developers, specifically as strategy game developers, where we're always aiming for easy to pick up and play but could take a lifetime to master. That's obviously why I think we were talking at the beginning, like why Age of Empires has been able to hold on as long as it has and probably will forever um, is because it's great at that. And Wildcard is our attempt to push those boundaries even further, to make a game that is even easier to pick up and play. You can just pick up a controller, start mashing buttons, and you'll be summoning creatures and you'll have a great time. And then the lifetime to master is there's so much depth in now not just the deck that you've built or the champion you've chosen but also in your real-time performance as you're running around that battlefield managing that action happening in real time so that's what wildcard is as we mentioned earlier in the call it's also then our vision for the next generation platform for content creation and entertainment uh specifically as a game that's meant to be watched as much as it is played but none of that stuff we were talking about earlier as cool as it is actually matters if the game itself isn't truly great and we're in that phase now we're like we was like we've been talking about this game we've been working on it for five almost six years now and we have found the fun but we're now in that crucial time where the game needs to go from good to great uh and it's part of what the reason why we launched it to our community why we now have like forty thousand plus people who are in there with us playing play testing the game on a daily basis giving us that feedback because we're in that part of the process we talked about earlier where we just we watch people play, we look at the parts they're frustrated, we look at the parts they're having the best time, and we just continuously daily iterate to the point where it's just this irresistible, uh, irresistibly fun experience. Well, I, I have to say, you know, I was, I was certainly the, the button masher when I played it for the first time. And I, I have to say, I mean, I've tried a lot of early games, alpha games, especially in Web3. There are very few where I wanted to play it immediately again after, and I did want to play Wildcard immediately after. <laughs> Thank you. So, so that's a good sign, and I and I do appreciate that. You know, much like a game like like Rocket League, um, it is simple, and the complexity uh, to the game is layered on as you get better and better, and then play against other competitors. It's not necessarily just complexity added to the game to keep it fresh and new, because the the problem with doing that is that when new players show up. And they have to learn all this stuff. And this is what I got with like League of Legends, for example. It just made it hard to onboard, right? And so I appreciate a game that is simple um, and that can become complex slowly. Uh, but again, like become a, a more challenging game because of the, the competitors, yeah, not because that, that, of the, the game itself. That discover, like, I, I, I think the phrase that comes to mind for me is like discoverable complexity. Like, you don't necessarily realize it when you're starting to play. And in fact, a little bit, you might feel like, this seems kind of simple. Like, I'm not sure. And then you'll watch your opponent do something, and you're like, wait, you can do that? I didn't know that that worked that way. And 
And what we've seen is when we when we have brought people back and played, you know, multiple rounds of wildcard, they, they, they can play kind of every single game they play, they discover something new that they didn't realize, like some synergy between the creatures, some way in which their champion works together on the battlefield with their summons, like that that's always what we're aiming for again is that we talked about earlier with nintendo is that discoverability like when the player ha- can have that moment of i wonder if this would work and then they try it and it works like that's one of my favorite feelings that video games can ever deliver and and certainly what what we're aiming for for wildcard i also wanted to mention cuz we were talking about web3 earlier what i find so fascinating about this specific opportunity is that the truly great games don't exist yet in Web3. Like, there's amazing games that, that I would heap praise on for getting us as far as we already have gotten in terms of people being excited about Web3 gaming. But there's not yet that, that game that is, like, so good that people are saying they're not calling it a Web3 game. They're just saying it's a game, right? So it's an amazing game that everybody wants to play. And that, those games are coming. And what I've seen, you know, as I've worked on different technology frontiers and and where those places where video games have changed and evolved like we were talking about earlier with mobile games those initial franchises that get it right that, that figure out whatever that unique formula is that 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 is what players are looking for when it comes to that new technology that new venue uh those games like plant a flag and can become those forever franchises um and the fact that that hasn't yet happened in web3 to me just speaks to the immense opportunity that exists here and, Absolutely. We, we just need a, you know, the way that Halo made the Xbox a thing, uh, you know, you need basically exactly. one or two titles to, to, to really win everybody over. Um, so just to wrap up, um, on the 20th, you guys are going to be releasing a wild pass, which, you know, uh, if anyone's familiar with the idea of a battle pass, I would imagine it's, it's a similar concept. That's right. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Person, yeah, you're the first person <laughs> that's made that correct analogy. Like, I look at this as like the ultimate Web3 battle pass, because like, what a battle pass is in a, you know in video games for those who aren't familiar is is basically something that increases your opportunity right if you're going to play the game anyway and you're having fun with it the, the, the most games are like you should buy this battle pass this premium battle pass because what it's going to do is it's just going to increase your rewards like as you progress as you level up like you don't have to have this but if you have it, it you're going to get rewarded more and there's going to be more opportunity for you if you if you activate this thing that's how I look at this. And I think it's a great fit for Web3 users because one of the unique things that Web3 users are looking for in their games is opportunity. And so for me, I was like, I think once we realized that and I was like, oh, that's what we can make here. We can make this this something that feels like the ultimate battle pass for a Web3 user. So that's what we're minting. As you mentioned, it's on 420. So it's just, I guess, nine days away. Um, and it is the wildcard Genesis wild pass. Uh, and it's only 44 Matic, which is, is quite low for something like this. Um, it's not free because we wanted, as Katie was saying in a, a call yesterday, we're, we're really looking for users who, who aren't just looking to flip this. Like we're, we're trying to build a community of people that are really interested in the game and the community um, and, and the experience. And so that helps us get there. But we also you know, wanted it to be extremely affordable. Um, there's 4,444 of these that will be minted. It's going to be on Magic Eden on 420 at noon Eastern. And uh, I look forward to seeing you all there. It's, it's entirely reasonable. I'm the kind of guy who spent over $1,000 on uh, Hearthstone cards, and I don't own anything after all of that. So I, I think the pricing makes sense. And I also think it's a very uh, low uh, but important filter to make sure you do get players. It's definitely something that's very important on the board box side. Like we've worked very hard to make sure that when we work with studios that we're bringing them actual players because unfortunately the space is full of, of many people who, 
you know, do you want to just sell assets? And, and there's a place for that. But you, uh, Paul, and your team want people to play your game. And so I think your, your strategy is right. Um, for anybody who doesn't follow Boardbox or me, um, just so you guys know, we will be getting an allocation of uh, wild passes as well or, or spots for, for wild passes. So uh, we'll be contributing to uh, helping, you know, uh, Paul yeah. and team, uh, you know, sell out, and I know they will. But, <laughs> and yeah. we have some other, we have we have some other top secret stuff we're doing with Boardbox. I'm really excited about the vision you guys have for that because there are, as you mentioned, there there's not a lot yet of like legit game developers and and publishers and and honestly people that are willing to, um, you know, to be out there helping to curate what are what like and, and kind of like sift through a lot of the noise that exists in especially in web3 and lead people to the great experiences and the great games and i love that vision you have for board box i'm, I'm really excited about it and working with you guys i, I, I appreciate it and my my promise uh to everyone is we're not going to necessarily become like valve and be a gatekeeper and charge a huge tax uh when we become a centralized point of <laughs> curation for people, that's not cool. That's not Web three. Uh, so we'll we'll find our way, just like Paul is, you know, basically reconstructing what uh, you know esports and, and competitive play looks like. So um, awesome. We we ran over Paul. Uh, every time we've talked, I've enjoyed it. I really appreciate that this time we got to record it like and what? share it with the with other people. Um, please do follow uh, Paul on Twitter. Uh, play Wildcard on Twitter. Um, and, uh, and do, 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 uh, check out the wild pass, uh, which I recently learned, uh, many people don't understand is a battle pass, uh, on yeah. the 20th of April. And, uh, I plan on getting one. I hope you do as well. And, uh, Paul, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and an honor to share the stage with you board. Thank you very much. I look forward to our next conversations. Absolutely. Thanks everybody for listening. Bye all.